Welcome to the FNO InsureTech Podcast, a place where movers and shakers from all points within the insurance ecosystem gather and discuss all things InsureTech. We talk about how technology and innovation are affecting and driving change in the industry. Here are your hosts, Lee Boyd and Rob Beller. Hey, podcast world. We're here with another edition of FNO InsureTech. The one, the only podcast, as my boss would say, the single source of truth. Single source of truth. In the insure tech world. Yeah. Right here. We're here over 200 episodes. Over 200 episodes of giving you guys all the information you need about insure tech, whether you want it or not. And, and a little laugh along the way. And, is there a little laugh along the way? I laugh at us. Do you? Do you when you listen to us? Do you I think a us? lot of people laugh at us, not with us, but no, at us. at us, at us. Like, well, what a bunch you know, of idiots. Whatever it takes. That's part of being an entertainer. I'm an entertainer. We're entertainers. We're news. We're entertainment news. We are. Maybe we'll, we'll change the name to like entertainment news tonight. Or I something. have an idea. Why don't we change it to People Magazine? <laughs> That's a great one. I think I think that'll that might be a hit. Do you You're think, onto something. Do you think that that might catch on? You're onto something. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, and I don't think any other organization would have a problem with us calling ourselves that. I don't think so. I okay. We'll just do it. We'll see what happens. Okay. It'll be weird that we're a podcast called Magazine. That might be confusing, but that's but, the least of our problems. But that's okay. Our <laughs> podcast is confusing, so it's a theme. Yeah, it's a theme. We're here, but but we're not here to talk about that. We're gonna that we're changing our name to People Magazine. <laughs> no, we're not. We're 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 here to do a podcast. Yeah, even though we interview fascinating people, and they and they oftentimes have a neat little story. Yeah, like what's the story today? Like today's story, we're interviewing a really interesting guy who's in the venture world, right? Kyle Beatty, managing director of AmFam Ventures. We're going to get it talk about that, but then we're going to get to talk about health and a little bit of his insight and why he's getting healthy and, and, and all those things. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. AmFam Ventures? Again. Again? Well, they're such a big deal. They are. And they're the nicest people. They are. They are a, they're a big deal. And in fact, I think I've heard the word AmFam Ventures, I bet five times in the last two weeks unassociated with our podcast because they're they're everywhere they they invest uh in fascinating things they they co-invest with fascinating groups it's a unique business mm-hmm. and and we get the privilege to to talk to Kyle today about it they're a very deeply thoughtful organization and when i met Kyle and had an opportunity to visit with him i realized that this is the kind of guy we want on the podcast and like you said not just because of his approach and his thoughts on venture capital. Yeah. But also he's an interesting cat. Yeah. We're going to get to talk about longevity, living life. We're going to talk. I mean, I listened to a longevity podcast. Yeah. And when I'm talking with him, the first time I met him, he says, Oh yeah, I listened to this particular podcast. So I knew that, uh, we had stuff in common and, um, I think you will agree with that too once you listen to the podcast. I think so. I think he hits on a subject that will actually get you thinking. That there, there's one thing that gets talked about. Shocker, we already did the the interview, but there's something really interesting that he talks about that could change your life, perhaps. So, with that in mind, we will stop our jibber jabbering. No more jibber jabber, and get right to our interview with Kyle Beatty, managing director at Ampham Ventures. 
So sometimes you are walking around a conference and you recognize somebody that you know who it is and you want to meet. And so you take a chance and you walk up to the guy and you say, hey, are you Kyle Beatty? And he says, yes. And that's our guest today. <laughs> and, that's and, awesome. and, and how we and how we roped him into this. He tried to run off. <laughs> run fast. Run he, fast. He, he did. And we'll talk about running. He tried, but but I grabbed him. And so today we have with us a VC who's been at it for a long time and and with one of the premier VCs in InsureTech, Kyle Beatty, Managing Director at AmFam Ventures. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome. Thanks, guys. Happy to be here. Where do you join us from today? Uh, I am about an hour north of uh, central Boston. So uh, it's oh, okay. a little cold today. Is it? Uh, what city? What city? I'm actually like just Salem? on the border in New Hampshire. Oh. So I live in a town, a oh, village okay. called Amherst. Oh, okay. There's a school there. Anyways, welcome to our podcast. We're thrilled to have you. You are the third member of the AmFam Venture team who has, um, who we've tricked into being on our podcast with us. So we really appreciate it. We've had Dan Reed and uh, Caitlin Johnson. You don't see them in person very often, right? Uh, we, we get together at, yeah, so many times a year, but mm -hmm. we're not all physically in, a, in the same office. We have a pretty distributed team mm -hmm. um, and we've grown quite a bit. We have a pretty large team now. And so we have folks that are um, on various parts of the East Coast, you know, from kind of Philly to Boston. And then we have folks in the, in the Midwest. And so uh, we have a, you know, quite a large distributed team, but we make a conscious effort to get together in person as much as we can. Uh, I think that's really important. To make sure that our decisions are, you know, as solid as they can be in terms of our investing. But not so much in Madison in the winter. That's a difficult choice, but it has to happen. But, uh, yeah, if we can, if we can find a warmer spot, that's definitely our preference. That's right. So, Miami is somewhere nice. Yeah. So, yeah, exactly. so let's talk for, let's, let's uh, level set first and t give us a minute on who you work for and, and, and what do you do there? Yeah. So um, yeah, American Family Ventures is a group that has evolved quite a bit over the last you know, 10 to 12 years. You know, we began you know, investing specifically from American Family's uh, balance sheet. It matured through um, multiple kind of different uh, allocations of capital there and now have the, the opportunity to uh, work with um, a diverse syndicate of insurance companies in addition to American family. And that gives us the ability to have coverage across, you know, lots of different areas of the insurance landscape. So today you know, we focus on investing predominantly at early stages, but we, we think about things across all aspects of the insurance value chain and all lines of business. So that might include healthcare, life, annuity, different parts of wealth management, or of course, you know, any part of PNC. And in, in that we, consider things outside of the U.S. as well in highly developing markets like India or in Latin America. So we have a pretty, pretty wide purview these days in terms of what we, what we focus on. And then we also look at things that are not necessarily core to insurance, but might be important to any large enterprise. So think of you know, DevOps solutions or things that would relate to cloud infrastructure, data science, really anything that might fall under, for example, a large enterprise's IT budget, you know, those kinds of horizontal 
software and technology companies are very, very exciting to us as well. And so we, we tend to, you know, have a, you know, an interest that's almost more like a generalist style investor because it's, you know, the insurance touches so many different market segments. We have a pretty wide, wide aperture. Define early stage, your definition of early stage. That can be really from, you know, a very early moment of inception of a company on through really the, probably the series B round is the place where, you know, we would focus kind of our, kind of our last, you know, substantial area of investment. So um, think of it as, you know, practically seed through series B as the, as the best description. That makes sense. And then, and then what, what do you do there? What is your job there? Well, so my, my focus is on, you know, making uh, the best you know, kind of investing decisions we can make and, and be uh, leading, you know, other members of our team toward the diligence and the support we need to provide to those, you know, portfolio companies post-investment. Um, so, you know, the majority of my attention is going toward that kind of deployment of the funds that we have uh, and then the kind of the, you know, kind of management of that portfolio through partnering with with the startup founders over the life cycle of those businesses. So that will involve, um, you know, serving those teams in a board capacity, in an advisory capacity, or if I can, you know, provide any um, connections or, you know, strategic uh, thoughts that are helpful to those companies' growth and, and journeys. And then in addition to that, we, we do spend quite a bit of time trying to work at the intersection of insurance, you know, incumbents or in insurance carriers that are in our network and the broader startup you know, ecosystem. You know, one of the things that we, uh, we tend to try and always emphasize is it's not necessarily those companies that we invest in that we have a relationship with, but it's really the broader suite of insurance technology and adjacent companies that we interact with. And given that we have over a dozen people now in our team who are responsible for sourcing uh, startup companies, it gives us the opportunity to talk with thousands of companies in a year. Wow. So we try and be a high value, you know, kind of point of connection between anyone that has an interest in insurance related technology and those companies that are trying to advance, you know, those uh, software and data agendas. So we, we try and you know, be a very high value kind of connector between those two spaces. I wanted to ask you about that because that I think is a unique thing about AmFam Ventures is your involvement with really kind of competitors of sorts, natural competitors, uh, other carriers. You guys are, although I, I don't exactly understand the relationship between you and AmFam, you were, as you said, you were born out of American family insurance. And how have you guys done that where you've been able to work cooperatively with companies that you might naturally compete with? Philosophically, I think that there's two facets that are kind of most important for you know insurance companies to be able to have the ability to digitally transform and just get the most out of that process. And one is to have a high degree of awareness and access to the companies that one might partner with. So where is technology moving? What uh, you know, what is the latest in terms of digital distribution, analytics? I might use in underwriting, etc. And then the second would be, how do we prepare our teams to be most effective in implementing those solutions? So what's the best way to partner with an early stage company? How do we move toward implementation and operational deployment in a way that is effective and efficient? 
And so if you have, you know, just a high degree of preparation and you have access, you know, typically those two things together prepare one to be in an advantaged place, you know, in terms of uh, being able to, um, you know, adopt you know, the, the new solutions that will move forward one's ability to grow and to do so profitably. So with that backdrop, what we yeah. seek to do is to create uh, an ecosystem for our firm that gives us maximal access and allows us to be in the best kind of position to coach and curate connections. And so what we found is by having more relationships that represent more diverse segments of the insurance ecosystem, it improves those two things. It gives us more access and puts us in a better position to be a high value coaching connector. And so, you know, that it's kind of a, you know, rising tide rises all Mm -hmm. boats philosophy. And we found that to really, you know, bear out to the benefit of any party we have a chance to work with formerly or informally. So you're kind of helping to lead the team to do it. Yeah. I view it as, you know, kind of part of my goal is to try and, you know, in partnership with the other senior investors on our team to try and just, you know, be able to deliver on our, our promise to, to maximize kind of financial return uh, and to be able to just be a, a really high value partner to each of the founders that we're fortunate to work with. And so, um, you know, daily, that's kind of what I, I, I wake up focused on. Um, and in doing so, we try and make sure that there's, um, you know, kind of operational value that comes out of our network access as well. So if a, an insurance company that we're uh, close with um, is looking for a specific type of technology. Hopefully we, we know, you know, half a dozen or more companies that might be useful there. And, and if we can help accelerate the process of evaluation, we, we try and do that as well. We've had many, um, of your, um, investments of the companies that you've invested in on our podcast, many of them. It's not just current ones, but, um, the, the ones that uh, have been realized are, um, I mean, they're like a who's who of, of insure techs. I'm going to say a couple of the names cause it's entirely uh, public hover branch. Um, you guys were in ring, I believe, mm-hmm. um, uh, bold penguin one ink. It, the, the, the list goes on. What do you attribute that batting average to? So you mentioned many of those that are very specific and directly tied to insurance. I think the, the one of the things I'm super proud of as a team that we achieve, uh, I hope that we, we achieve consistently is not only to be you know involved with a company like the ones that you mentioned, but to develop a point of view of what we think will be successful pretty early on in those companies' life cycles. So you know, many of the ones that you mentioned, we um, originally invested in the seed uh, and in some cases the Series A uh, rounds, but you know, developed conviction that those companies were positioned for success quite early. And I think that you know, in a, a very specific vertical market like insurance, I think having subject matter expertise coming from that market is extremely important. And so we, you know, I, you know, I try and draw on my own background there, um, you know, daily as I try and assess what the future landscape might look for the insurance industry. And we hire 
individuals into our team who bring different lenses you know, of the insurance market um, from their backgrounds. And, and for those that are new to the industry, you know, they, as part of our uh, kind of daily environment inside our firm, they, they're responsible for um, developing deep expertise in certain segments. So I, I think it's the subject matter expertise that is insurance specific that has a very large amount uh, uh, to do with us, you know, kind of feeling high confidence early in certain types of companies. In the other cases, um, and Hover, you know, is somewhat is an illustration of this because Hover is very active in insurance claims uh, uh, resolution, but a lot of their a lot of their business is in contracting, you know, with construction. And so, in other cases, we do seek to be. The, the most you know, valued insurance um, you know, kind of organization that someone in an adjacent market might want to involve. And so if you're, in, you know, if you're a, a prop tech company or you know, a, a fintech company like in lending um, or wealth management or, or a small business related software, you know, if, if someone is seeking engagement with the insurance industry, we try and put ourselves in a place where we can be, you know, kind of short on that list, if not, if not near the top of who they might want to reach out to, to involve uh, a fund, you know, in their you know, kind of future fundraising efforts uh, that has insurance expertise. And so the, the nature of that results in about kind of half of our investments being core insurance and about half being in these uh, adjacent markets that, that have an intersect with the insurance that, industry. That, that's a good, Hover is a great example and we encounter that all the time where we'll have somebody on the podcast whose company is just that. They're primarily working in w one thing, but they want to come into, they want to come into insurance or they're adding value. Like uh, I think of drone base, right? Um, I mean, drone base is, I mean, they're huge in solar. Yeah. Um, and, um, but, but also involved in the insurance vertical. So, yeah, and, and Hover was great. Um, you know, I've been fortunate to work with um, you know AJ and, and other members of the F Hover team for several years, and mm -hmm. you know, I think you know I didn't personally lead that initial investment decision. Um, that was before I joined the firm, but have been a chance to be the um, the point of interface for uh, with that team. And and for me personally, you know, I observed a lot of similarity to some of the Verisk businesses that I was close close to when I was a member of, of Verisk Analytics and, you know, companies like ExactWare are good illustrations of, of businesses that have, um, you know, kind of exercise that intersection between construction, uh, restoration and insurance really, really effectively to produce kind of balanced revenues across more than one vertical market. And I think as we, as we look toward investing, that's an attribute in startups that we really tend to, to get excited about. Um, and that's partly because, you know, it does increase, it increases the overall market opportunity. If there's, you know, kind of more than one synergistic vertical that you can pursue. And it also, you know, kind of buffers a little bit in terms of, the um, the sales cycle and speed to revenue development because sometimes you know selling into the insurance industry can can be extremely effective but take a little bit of time mm -hmm. and some other other things like you know selling to contractors might be a little quicker way to generate the early revenue that's very important to build momentum if you're an early stage company so we tend to 
really get excited about businesses that play at an intersect of two or three spaces. And, you know, Hover is a great example of, of that. So talk a little bit about your time at Vera Risk. Uh, I, I do see that you were at Vera Risk for a little while on the insurance solutions side. How has that set you up for success in this current role as manager, managing director at Amfam Ventures? Yeah, I would say that there's probably, I mean, there's, there's a number of ways we could say. I was very fortunate um, at my time at Verisk to get exposure to some of the attributes that that I've um, you know, kind of learned and that Verisk certainly learned experientially that made for a really great um, uh, data business or a really great software business with a, a very deep moat. And so um, what you know, I started to observe were, you know, what were the things that created highly durable long-term revenue streams that had the potential for high profit margin? Um, and, you know, kind of what was the attribute that, that created, uh, you know, a very high market share, you know, opportunity. And those tended to be things that had tight interplays with the regulatory environment, uh, tended to have proprietary data as a core component, tended to have certain ways of contracting with customers, which might result in customers um, sharing data that is aggregated and then resold out back into the market. Um, but there were a number of facets that kind of produced a formula for you know a great analytic business, and you know that. So I was definitely a student of what those uh, elements. Uh, are. Um, and I think the other thing that the experience from Veris kind of taught me was it helped me really understand the claim and the underwriting workflows yeah. of insurance companies, um, and particularly on the casualty side, as well as property. I'd spent a lot of time in property, you know, in the past, cause I have a catastrophe kind of modeling and catastrophe risk, uh, background and spent quite a bit of time on property cat treaties when I was at Willis but it spent less time in, in casualty. And so, you know, seeing that firsthand, uh, whether it be through the core ISO business and what makes ISO itself so unique or the different, you know, kind of claim fraud analytics, et cetera, uh, that uh, Verisk has, as well as the pre-filled data, you know, all of those things really helped me understand those kind of transactional workflows on the underwriting and claim side, which are just exceedingly important to make sure you know companies can hit their expense and, and underwriting targets, so I, I found that to be a really a really great education, and was fortunate to be able to help inform and, and build some of the data that fed into those uh, those workflows. So it was kind of a natural step to go from there to to the venture community. Interestingly, I'd say probably wasn't like the the most straight line. Um, you know, the, the, you know, the, the thing I was finding, um, so I had spent, I'd spent, uh, you know, kind of a considerable amount of time with, uh, Willis Towers, Watson, uh, and then subsequently Veris, which were large organizations, uh, both excellent, uh, companies, but, but ones that, you know, I'd say were, uh, optimizing for, um, you know, things that were a little different than, you know, kind of high paced, growth that you'd find in a startup environment. And I, I began my career at a, a growth stage uh, startup company in, in the Silicon Valley area of RMS. And, and so, you know, that, that culture and that nature never really left my, left my blood. I really, really enjoyed the, uh, 
the innovation and the, the new development of software and, and the business development effort of trying to you know, create an audience uh, for uh, that solution, you know, inside the insurance industry. So I was compelled really to focus more on that early stage product orientation. Uh, so actually the, the first step for me, you know, after, um, after leaving Veris was to found an analytics company. Um, and initially that was really in a research mode. Uh, but myself and a, and a co-founder began to kind of work on geospatial analytics. Um, and, um, you know, that had, uh, you know, gestated for a while in the research mode. And in parallel, I was doing a lot of, uh, uh, consulting and advisory work with startups. And that, that led to, you know, an opportunity to, you know, explore, uh, ways in which I could, uh, partner with American family ventures as well. And so I think it was over a breakfast, you know, the, you know, the conversation shifted from, um, you know, the startup ideas I had to, you know, maybe there was a fit on the investing side, which I hadn't really considered quite frankly, prior to that, um, yeah, I had always been more in an operating mode. And to a question you brought up earlier, I think that that's something that I try and bring in the way I work with startups today is to try and bring the empathy and the awareness of, of what it is to, to have, uh, you know, found you be responsible for payroll, be responsible for operating results and carrying that weight, you know, as one, uh, makes their way through their day. Um, and so, you know, that was really the way I thought of myself. Um, but, uh, it turned out that the way the, the American family ventures team orients itself, it, it, it does so with, you know, a deep level of partnership as an intent. Uh, and so because it was a high touch, high, uh, you know, kind of high, um, engagement model with founders, that felt like to me that was really aligned with what I what I enjoy and what I care about, and so it, it just so turned out that it was a great fit. And I, you know, of course, I knew Dan Reed and and the team quite well and had a high degree of trust, and so it was a natural fit. But it wasn't one I wasn't one I sought out. You know, it was one that kind of just organically developed and has been a, just a fantastic uh, decision. And I found it to be. It, it turns out, it, I think it was great preparation, but not. I'd say not necessarily the not not a straight line. Were you having breakfast with Dan Reed that day? I think I had I had uh, breakfast at the time with uh, uh, you know Dan and then also other folks at the firm at the time, Drew Aldrich uh, um, and who kind of collectively my arm was twisted yeah to mm -hmm. to join in and it was uh, just a great decision. I'm glad, very glad that they presented that opportunity and and uh, you know thrilled to be a part of the team. So I want to ask you about the VC environment of uh, 2023. Things are quite different, and I'm talking generally over the over the insure tech arm of the VC world. Um, in uh, talking generally in 2023, relative to like let's say 2021, things have moved quickly in a very different direction. Talk for a minute about that change and, 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 and how things are different today and maybe where they're heading. Yeah, I think that it's interesting because, you know, InsureTech is, you could take that from so many different perspectives. So, you know, you could take that from, if I were building a, a full stack carrier, you know, frame of reference. Um, and so I think what's, what might be different there is there's 
a wider level of appreciation for the fundamentals of insurance underwriting, the fundamentals of insurance claim management, um, just, you know, the, the nuts and bolts of, of you know, running an insurance company, which will be very natural and obvious to, to most that are, you know, come native from the industry. But, you know, if, if you were a crossover investor from the fintech markets or otherwise, you know, th- those details might not have been as, as you know, tangible, you know, uh, several years ago as, as they may be today. Uh, from our lens, you know, we, we never really relaxed our attention around those attributes. But I think that there's just, you know, a, a more universal focus uh, on those facets. And, you know, if you were to stay on the thread of being an InsurTech carrier, you know, as, as the slice we're thinking about at the moment, the, the trick there is to be, you know, exceptional at customer acquisition whilst still being great at underwriting, having a differentiated advantage there and being very, you know, uh, expense advantaged around the cost of underwriting and claim management and policy servicing. Doing all that in a space that is large is, is a very hard formula to solve for. Um, you know, one can do those things in a niche market. Yeah. Um, but to do all of those things in an extremely large market, because we don't, you know, we don't have that many segments of the, you know, insurance industry that are hundred billion dollar plus lines of premium, you know, and so it, it's it's a very difficult thing to get that equation where all of those line up, so that as the venture investor, you know, you can see the opportunity for a, a disproportionately large financial return. And so I see that that is being a, um, you know, a tricky formula to solve for, um, you know, uh, you know, faceting in this, the scale requirement in addition to the excellence on the operating side. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we can t- continue to look for those opportunities and that, you know, involves us doing so, you know, in North America, as well as in emerging markets that have a lot of growth potential. And then if you take InsurTech and you move it to a different lens, um, those companies that are seeking to serve insurance businesses, uh, I think that there are a lot of excellent opportunities there to uh, streamline claim process, support, um, you know, kind of the analytical side of uh, risk management. Um, I think that, you know, the, the facets that we always counsel startups to reflect on is, you know, the, the true objective size um, of the market that they can serve. And so we tend to get excited about companies that are focused on, for example, more than one line of business, more than one part of the, um, the value chain uh, and, uh, sometimes not necessarily more than one uh, geography. That last point is very difficult because insurance is not a global market in most respects to multinational market. So it's, it's very difficult to be successful across multiple countries. Um, but certainly more than one line of business and, and different places in the value chain that creates the space for the market size to be big enough. If one's a, a software provider or a data provider to the insurance industry and so, you know, those are things that we focus on. I think we'll see a lot of great companies that are solving point solutions that uh, generate um, you know, strong impact for carriers. Um, and I think that there'll need to be some consolidation of those probably to create the large, large enough scale to produce a, 
you know, a, a very, very large, you know, company. But uh, I think that there's, a, there's, there's great opportunities there. And, and insurance companies, broadly, they're, they're really enthusiastic, you know, about embracing those technologies in ways today that have been, you know, haven't been uh, as present, you know, in the last several years. The readiness is there, I think. So it's a good yeah. opportunity to, to do that. And then there's other spots in the, you know, if we were to define InsureTech from a, you know, a, a different lens. I think there are new pathways for distribution, um, you know, digitally enabled agencies as an example, mm-hmm. that I think have a lot of potential. Right. Um, and, you know, if you think about what percentage of premium gets allocated <laughs> different, to different parts of, you know, um, different parts of the insurance process, you know, sales, commissions, marketing, that's a disproportionately high amount consistently across multiple lines. And so, um, you know, a multi-line agency you know, that's digitally enabled can be particularly interesting. And so I think we, I we tend to think a lot about that side as well. So I'd like to go back to something you, you said. We had Ellen Carney on with Forrester uh, just the other day, and she was talking about how she believed and her research shows that somewhere between a, a 20 and 40 percent of insured techs will not be here. Will will either be going away through their you know not working out or through uh, being acquired by others uh, insurance companies other insured techs. Um, you were saying that in twenty twenty three in twenty twenty three, and you were saying that you could see companies being acquired or coming together. What what do you think about that statement? What is your thought whenever you you hear that? Yeah, it's I mean it's hard to put the percentages in context. Um, you know, so I'm. I'm I'm reflecting on those numbers. I mean, I think that the, the, the difficult thing. And so, you know, the thing I think that has to be solved for, um, is when pursuing the insurance industry as, as the end customer, um, that, you know, a, a challenge can be that the, um, the, again, the market size, you know, the market size is often discovered to be a little bit smaller than originally presented. Um, sometimes there can be a fairly large, you know, a large gap there. So that's kind of one realization that often occurs for startups. And then the sales cycle can be demonstrated to be longer than was anticipated. When a sale is achieved, it can be a little bit more incremental in revenue growth rather than very large step ups. And, and so if you add those three things together, it can create a situation where it requires patience. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think in the last several years, there was enough enthusiasm in the market that some of the fundraising wasn't, wasn't grounded in patience. It was, it was somewhat grounded in exuberance. So you would have an environment where expectations and the, and the priming of the business from how it's spending its money and how it's messaging with stakeholders is in one frame of reference, but the the reality of the market may be a little different. And so that disconnect can create a point of tension that might, you know, might result in someone becoming low on, on, on uh, cash or uh, otherwise having, you know, kind of less market momentum than was anticipated. And so there might, there might be a, a need to align, you know, different solutions together to try and have a stronger, you know, positioning. I think that that, I think that that seems like that could happen. Um, yeah. And then also from a, you know, a venture backed lens, you know, the founders 
and the investors in many cases, you know, may still want to, you know, uh, see those companies achieve a higher potential. And so, you know, the, the combination of two companies, you know, keeps the upside available in some cases uh, versus, you know, a, a premature outcome for, you know, a company in isolation. So I think it can be a, it could be an attractive option. Um, I think that the, the difficult thing sometimes is you mentioned carriers acquiring. I think sometimes that the tricky thing there is to just uh, become familiar and aware with companies that might be a good fit. Uh, so much of this might be more insular startup to startup interaction or investor to investor interaction uh, and maybe less, uh, it may be less awareness uh, on behalf of the insurance company that you know, an acquisition opportunity might be present. And so I think that would probably be, if I were the carrier, I would be thinking about how do I get, how do I get a lens into where those opportunities are? Because I think that could be a little bit more elusive or a little bit harder to find. I'd like to switch up the subject a little bit and talk about climate. Sure. Um, one of the things that we've learned about you is that you're, you're a weatherman. You're a weather guy. Who would have known? I thought I knew you, <laughs> and, but, but we've learned through your resume, you're a weatherman. D tell us about that. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, literally, uh, you said literally. The, two, the two examples. Yeah. I did. I was fortunate to do like about a hundred live broadcasts yeah, on the cable access stuff. You know, it's not, not very <laughs> exciting, but I, I kind of cut my teeth in broadcasting in that regard because that's what I thought I wanted to do. Cause I involved, I enjoyed communicating science, you know, and, and, and I was just passionate about, you know, violent and extreme weather from a very early age. Later, I you know, basically started to embody some of the characters that you see in the movie Twister. Uh, in grad school, I, I you know, had, you know, some aspects of that. Um, there are many, many people who dedicate their lives to that more than, than I did from a storm chasing perspective. But I had, you know, you know, an opportunity to firsthand experience extreme weather in the field as well. And so, you know, that, that's, that is definitely a component of my background. Um, I would say what I've taken from that is, you know, I'd say I've taken from that both um, a, a appreciation for, you know, kind of what, what you know, the insurance industry is serving, you know, the, the, you know the, how when a, a catastrophe occurs, when, you know, people's lives are disrupted, you know, what, what is that really, you know, what are we as an insurance industry really trying to do from a, a value perspective back to uh, individual policyholders and, and you know, families? And because, uh, you know, seeing those things firsthand um, leave an impression that's very different than an actuarial, maybe analytical point of view. So I'd say that I take that with me. And then also I just observe things um, it being, you know, more extreme or more volatile is really the right word you know, over the balance of, you know, just the last couple of decades when I've been, you know, kind of very focused on this. And so that is the, one of the ways in which I, I think of climate change is just, you know, substantially more volatility. Uh, and, and so as a result, you know, we see, um, uh, a lot of unexpected result, you know, unexpected risks, unexpected outcomes. Uh, and so I, I try and where I can find, interesting ways to intersect our investing activity and, and the climate environment. 
Is that something whenever it's time to either you're being asked to invest in that or find companies, is that kind of your thing? They'll, they'll go to you and say, hey, this is a, a climate, this is a weather, this is something, even analytics associated with weather, you know, go Kyle. Is that how that works? I, that is an area I get pulled into. You know, um, I'll get uh, pulled into a lot of other areas as well. But that, that is one. I would say the tricky thing is it's sometimes hard to have a really big business if what you're trying to do is say climate in 10 years is going to be worse. You know, like that, yeah. that, that's interesting data point, not as actionable. So we tend to focus on things where it's the application of that knowledge to a business problem. Um, it, or another lens would be, is there a way in which a current industry practice can be transformed with technology and in doing so, can it also be carbon negative? Mm-hmm. And so we'll look at you know, new construction materials or uh, we'll look at uh, ways in which you know, the uh, nature or vegetation can be managed. Um, you know, we'll look at these kinds of businesses that can be transformed with technology and can, by virtue of what they're doing, change the climate equation. But it's not by itself a climate analytic you know, company. It's not, a, it's not a risk index, uh, so to speak. Uh, instead it's a, you know, kind of a, you know, just a, an application that has a climate overlay. Uh, that said, I'd say we do get very, uh, focused on insurance company catastrophe, uh, analytic businesses as well. So if, if we see great, so. great solutions to underwrite wildfire and flood risk differently, um, we are, we're always interested in understanding, you know, those opportunities, uh, cause it's only going to get more and more extreme in terms of the, the challenge of underwriting those kind of, uh, natural hazards effectively. Uh, so we, we pay a lot of attention to that. Do you, do you think that what, what's your opinion of the climate progression that, that we're currently in? Like I live in California, Northern California, and it's it's raining again. It's crazy. I mean, we were in this significant drought and now we're in the opposite. Now we we're in the tropics. And so what, give us a, give us some, from an educated standpoint, your, your thoughts on, on climate. Well, my, my general perception is just that, you know, if, if we had a certain degree of variability and sensible weather day to day, you know, 20 years ago, that variability has gone up meaningfully. Um, and, and so what's the, what's the result of that? The result isn't that we're just a little bit more uncomfortable, um, in a given time. Instead, what it means is like, if if you're in California, if the variability goes substantially up in terms of, for example, snowpack, you know, in one year you might have, you know, substantial snowpack, but in many cases there's, um, insufficient snowpack to generate the amount of total water capacity that the state might need. Um, and so it creates stresses on systems that are designed around averages rather than designed around extremes. And then the same right. could be true if you were to look at, you know, the examples in, um, you know, Texas or, you know, the, the central part of the country around their kind of uh, response to extreme cold, you get the same situation where the infrastructure has been more designed around kind of, you know, smaller volatility average cases. If we get extreme cold, you know, we can have situations where you have, you know, grid collapse. And and so I think in general, our infrastructure is insufficiently prepared for these levels of extremes. 
And so when we, when I think about climate, I get really interested in the infrastructure layer. Um, I get really interested in the, um, large scale adaptation, uh, which, you know, will frequently come through hard, you know, hard infrastructure solutions rather than risk or software solutions. Because I think that that's kind of where the, where really the rubber meets the road from a problem standpoint. Um, I think we, we need to see massive upgrades in infrastructure to be prepared to survive through these more volatile states. Um, cause it's not just, it's not just a departure from comfort. I think it, you know, it can, it can have a, you know, you know a true detrimental effect to individual lives. Right. We, I was watching a, a program last night to do with, you know, all this weather that we're getting here in California. <clears throat> and they, one of the statements that was made was that there's a, as much water running off back into the ocean, uncaptured, if you will, that could fill Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which as we all know are, are desperately low um, on capacity right now, or low levels. And the scientists that they were interviewing said, yes, that's true. <clears throat> we just don't have the infrastructure right. to deal with capturing that, right? Um, if we could capture that water, that'd be great. Capture it and then send it to Lake Mead and fill Lake Mead, that'd be great. But those those kind of solutions aren't in place because we haven't invested properly to put those into place in this new world where we have to make hay when the sun is shining, if you will, right? Get get the water when you can because because we're used to the average or we're still hoping for the average and the average may be, may be gone. And infrastructure projects take a long time. And expensive. And I'd say the, you know, the, the underlying climate attributes here that we see, we experience daily is weather. That is changing at a pace. And in some ways, the local effect is hard to predict. So it's hard to say the infrastructure we need for the next 30 or 40 years is the following so we can start building it now. So I think that what's going to be necessary is to have you know, a more nimble a more nimble way of dealing with these issues, um, you know, kind of very long-term multi-decadal scale infrastructure projects are going to be very difficult to do right. And so that just seems like to me, that's going to be a, a required shift in thinking. Um, and I, so I think there'll be a very large business opportunity as it relates to, you know, climate adaptation and, and, you know, shifts in infrastructure uh, so, you know, that's the area I get, I get really excited about, which is it indirectly to the, you know, to the benefit of the insurance industry. So are you still a weather nerd? That's yeah. the key question. Uh, yes. Although, you know, you definitely hear my wife and others say that I'm not the best weather forecaster. Yeah. They all revel in that, right? That's great stuff. Yeah. You always get the, you always get the question, what's the weather going to be like tomorrow? And I'll, I'll generally say, I, I don't know. I haven't looked, uh, yeah. I'm not that kind of person, but I, I definitely you know, feel like I can understand what's going on. The, the really interesting thing is, you know, I, um, when I, when I joined RMS and I was so, so fortunate to be a part of that, that company in the, uh, very early two thousands, I had the opportunity to work on all kinds of natural hazards, 
in industrial fire, you know, pandemics, you know, other forms of man-made risks like terrorism, uh, earthquakes, other geotechnical issues like liquefaction. And so, you know, to me, weather and climate was a, a door into the, you know, a whole host of, uh, you know, kind of environmental and man-made extremes. Uh, and that was just fortunate that that was a lens into reinsurance, which was subsequently a lens into underwriting and claims. And, and so, um, you know, day to day, you know, I'd say it, it's something I don't get to exercise a lot. I focus more on, you know, software uh, businesses or, you know, different forms of, you know, kind of insure tech. But it, it's an area that absolutely I'm very passionate about. And particularly I'm passionate about, you know, drawing down uh, carbon, you know, in aggregate. Uh, mm-hmm. And ways to just try and help support those who get displaced, um, because so, there's you know an awful lot of climate refugees presently, and there will be in the future. So that's definitely a passion no kind of uh, project. Uh, no question, me. no question. And, and and speaking for, I'll speak for myself as a human being. Thank you, I appreciate that. Agree. Uh, but you mentioned ex- you said exercise. Yeah, I, we can't let you go without talking about exercise. Sure, um, because because. Now I have the two probably biggest exercise nerds I I know Lee Boyd another and, another and, reference and, a nerd and Kyle Beatty both on Beatty both on the same screen that I'm looking at so you're a runner I, but not I a am. long runner you made yourself into a runner that's kind of the Lee Boyd story yeah tell tell us about yours what what made you decide to start running I was like ultimate couch potato growing up you know I was the video game kid. Um, but, uh, I, I, this is to tie it back to weather. I was in a field experiment in grad school where we were out in the middle of Western Kansas and our job was to find, you know, tornadoes or other things like that. And if, if you have that job, you watch the movie Twister, it's exciting. Yeah. In practice, 99% of the time you're staring at a blue sky waiting for something <laughs> interesting to happen. Uh, and, and so when I was work, you know, just a professor that was part of the program turned me on to running in all this downtime. And so I, I kind of caught the bug and just had this bucket list of wanting to, to get to longer and longer distances. Okay. And then um, yeah, after talking about it for a while, you know, it became something I was like, I probably ought to actually do this. And so, um, started to try and ramp up and figure out, you know, how to avoid injury and whatnot. And, yeah. and the pandemic was really a great, um, you know, kind of great giver of time. Uh, you know, I spend, I've spent about half of my, my working days, you know, for many years traveling. And so it was great to get that time back. And, and I just channeled a lot of that into training. And so I've been fortunate to do about a half dozen marathons in the last few years and, um, that's amazing. And, uh, an old, the first ultra, which was, you know, which fun. ultra, which one, uh, this is called, um, crown King in Arizona. Okay. Um, so it's kind of up, 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 uh, a mountain and which sounds more dramatic than, than it was. Cause there's a fair amount of walking involved in that, but it was just hey, a great, ultras are far. great surreal experience. And just, and so I've just found joy in pushing myself. And I'd say like in general, like a mode I have is a, I just, I really like challenging myself to achieve new goals. I'm a very goal oriented person. And, and so, you know, right now I'm on a quest to finish all the Abbott, you know, kind of world majors and, um, Goodness. so working on that and, uh, you know, along the way I've gotten really into 
different forms of health optimization and health span kind of. Okay. Uh, so I, I spend a lot of time thinking about nutrition and all that as well. That's fantastic. Which major is next? What are you, what are you shooting for now? Uh, so yeah, in March, I'm going to be uh, participating in Tokyo. So I'm excited about that. That's amazing. Uh, and then Chicago. You've already done Boston, right? I did twice. Um, and I have to, I have to, you know, caveat this. I'm, I'm not a qualifier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm a but you found runner. your way in. You found yeah, your so, way in. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't want to oversell my abilities here, but it's, <laughs> you're, it's you're, you're, yeah, you're three really, hour really great experience. And so, yeah, I get a chance to do Tokyo in, in March, uh, Chicago in the fall. And then, then, uh, uh, get London done the year after. And that'll that's amazing. Round it out. That's amazing. I assume, I assume those goals, I mean, all this, all this time you're able to bring that back into your work. You know, I, I run a lot and I can, I use it as thinking, I use it as brainstorming. I assume you do the same and then your, your goal oriented, which would have to also reflect in, in, in your work. Yeah. It, yeah. I think it's absolutely, um, I, I, I try and set, you know, kind of big, difficult goals, I, I tend to be really like methodically disciplined, you know, which it kind of takes to get up every day and train for, and, you know, log a thousand miles a year, or what have you running. And then it is a, almost meditative, you know, yeah. the running is, you know, has that, it's a very clarifying. So uh, I, I value that. Um, and just hope my knees can allow oh, me they'll to, hang, to do that. They'll, they'll allow you. They'll allow. What about triathlons? You got triathlons on the radar? Uh, I need that, to learn that after the majors? Uh, to, to pull that off, but it's, it will be, it'll be on the, like the, the bucket list for the next five to 10 years. You know, I'll, Good. I'll try and do that. Good for you. Good for you. Lee, you have a few marathons under your belt, don't you? I do. I do. I've, I've done, I've, I don't do the marathons anymore. I mean, I, I guess I could, but now I, I've, I focus on the five Ks, 10 Ks, things like that. Now triathlons, mostly. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, triathlons mostly is, is impressive. <laughs> so well, They're fun. Well done. They're fun. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'll have another beer, please. Um, <laughs> they serve those at the finish line, Rob. No, but you listen to Peter Atia. We talked about this. I do. I do. Yeah. No, I'm Mm -hmm. super, yeah, super into, um, you know, health optimization from those lenses. And, and for, for me, like where that fits in is just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm analytical by nature. I think I think my team will always kind of say that I'm one of the most analytical people that they will interact with, you know, day to day. And so, that that shows itself in you know in my thought processes from a investment perspective, but it it also kind of reveals itself in terms of how I think about you know exercise, diet, um, supplementation, you know uh, all of those things. And you know I'm I'm pretty um, you know I'm, I'm I'm pretty adamant that you know I I'm on a quest to to you know live to be 150, and people kind of think that's that's you know, crazy to say, and it probably is a little bit extreme. We were talking to somebody the other day said that it's predicted that whoever's going to live to 200 first is alive today. Yeah. And the reason I, the reason I use that, like I use it as a mental framing, um, you know, and, and the reason why I say that is to me, you know, so I, you know, I'm in my mid forties. Um, and there's a lot of people in their mid forties who have kind of just, uh, you know, just accepted, you know, that they're not going to, accomplish, you know, kind of substantial new things that they haven't already tried. And my view is if you frame 
if you you have a frame of reference that you have, if you're if you're in your mid forties, you've got seventy five healthy years ahead. There's so much one can do, and so it, yeah. I use it as a frame of reference just to push myself to embrace new things. You know, try and live as a rookie, trying new new things, and and not seeing it as though you know I'm. I'm, you know, kind of over any hill, but that I'm, I'm just kind of just starting out and I'm fortunate to be a little wiser than I used to be. And I can maybe be a little more disciplined going after something new. So, so that, that it's more a mindset for me than anything, but I do definitely try and try and do what I can to, to, you know, enjoy, you know, you know, enjoy my journey and, and not feel like I'm, you know, saddled by any kind of health issues if, if they're avoidable. That's wonderful. I love that. And and so you do all you can. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we um, are so thrilled that we had you on and um, uh, all the way from Amherst. Honored to uh, have another member of the AmFam Venture team join us and uh, would love to have you come back again. Yeah, I would maybe, love to do it. Thank you, guys. Maybe after London. Yeah. Sounds I'm fine good. after Tokyo. Yeah. <laughs> okay. After Tokyo. That's fine. But you've done Tokyo before, haven't you? No, no. This will be okay. the first time. And that'll, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. It's going to be a blast. That'll be amazing. Well, we will say sayonara until, um, until the next time we have you on. And thank you very much for, for joining us and look forward to seeing you um, out and about at, uh, at, at industry events. Thanks, everyone. I appreciate it. Thanks for being on, Kyle. I knew when I met Kyle at Property Information Report Conference, National Conference. When you hunted him down? When I hunted him. When I stalked him. him in the corner. Stalked him and um, handcuffed him and um, made him talk to me. Yeah. That he would be a great guest. He was a great guest. He's a great guest. Very interesting man. I I agree. I love it when we have... uh, when we have people who are who are dedicated to their life's mission, let it be his work with investments, or let it be bettering himself, his longevity. Um, yeah, I, I wants, love that. He wants to live to be one hundred and fifty. You know, I think that's a quote. That's a quote that we'll, we'll probably stick with because he had a great thought. It was if I have the mindset that I'm going to live to be one hundred and forty, I have seventy five years left of great life. It's not I'm halfway done because I'm only living to 80, right? What a neat way to look at life. You have to have a good attitude, man. You have to have a good attitude. And He's he, a very positive person. Very positive and super smart and um, and a weatherman. Yeah. We thank him for being with us today. You're awesome, Kyle. Look forward to seeing you next time. And thanks to all you for being here with us today and to Alan and Alicia for your help. And until next time... Goodbye, everybody.